This is the third teaching in our series, Boundaries of Reconciliation. Now, before I start, I need to say this. We gave this teaching live uh, in January of 2023, but it didn't record right, and so I'm having to re-record it. So, this is a little bit difficult because, of course, in the original talk, you have the interaction of the room and the responses, and here we don't. And so I'm going to say a prayer as we start, just to ask the Lord to help us in uh, communicating what He wants to communicate during this time. So Father, I want to give you this time, give you this talk. Thank you for what you've entrusted to us at Christ the Reconciler in this Boundaries of Reconciliation series. I pray for each listener uh, right now who's listening to this, that, that the, the Holy Spirit would cause exactly what they need to hear to be resonant in their spirit. And I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Since Christ the Reconciler is a ministry working for unity and reconciliation in the body of Christ, this series, Boundaries of Reconciliation, is intended to help us think, who do we seek unity with? Anybody in the world? Or just the few who think like us? Or people who share our political views? In the first teaching, True and False Unity, we saw that the first boundary established was established by Jesus. And this is recorded in John 17, 20. That boundary was between his followers and those who are not yet following him. So, how do we know who his followers are? He established two markers. First, faith. Those who believe in him. Second, rootedness in the disciples and their words. Now, a quick note. When we gave this teaching the first time, we used the word continuity instead of rootedness. So we talked about the two marks being faith and continuity. That caused some unnecessary confusion because some thought we were referring to the concept of apostolic succession. So the continuity of apostolic succession through the millennia. Now, this is important to the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches. After reflection, we felt rootedness was a better word. Since apostolic succession is one expression of rootedness, but not the only one, there are others, such as the Protestant emphasis on the Word of God, literally in John 17, 20, the word is logos, the word, and the Messianic Jewish identification with the Jewish identity of Jesus and his disciples. That's another expression of rootedness. So the two markers, who is a follower of Jesus? Number one, faith. Number two, rootedness. Thus, true unity is unity with followers of Jesus. And false unity would be to attempt to establish unity with those who are not followers of Jesus. But what if I don't want to pursue unity with someone who is a follower of Jesus or who identifies and adheres to these two marks, faith and rootedness? I know I'll expel them from the body of Christ. That way I don't have to worry about pursuing unity with them. This is a common tendency, especially in our country, America, in these divided days, to unilaterally expel people from the body of Christ. 
we do it with statements such as these. Real Christians are X. Or, you can't be a Christian and vote for Y. We made the argument that there are three serious considerations that anyone should make before deciding to expel a person or an entire group of people from the church. First, have I been given spiritual authority to cast this person or group out of the body of Christ? That settles the question 99% of the time, but remarkably, most people don't even think about this. Number two, assuming that I do have that spiritual authority, am I willing to risk committing the unforgivable sin by asserting that there is no evidence of the presence or work of the Spirit in their lives? Now, this one is a loaded one, so if you haven't listened to the first teaching, and actually the second teaching as well, before listening to this teaching, I encourage you really stop it, the video right now, go back and listen to those. <laughs> Because there's a lot unpacked there that needs to be uh, explained. And there's clarifications and scriptural background that you need to have. But this is the second question. Am I willing to risk committing this unforgivable sin? Okay, number three. Am I assured that labeling them as not real Christians will not make it more difficult for others to turn to God? So these are the three questions we need to ask ourselves before we decide to expel someone from the body of Christ. That was the first teaching. Second teaching, we explained, actually Amy, that there are also smaller boundaries within the larger boundary of Jesus' followers. Here are some examples. And note, please, that these circles are not intended to be to scale. So, Amy said, Jesus created the church and gave apostolic authority to those who initiate and lead it. These apostles who lead churches, denominations, ministries, and so forth, set the boundaries for the specific calling and identity of the flocks that God has given them to shepherd. These may be doctrinal boundaries. For example, a belief that baptism should always be by immersion. So this church or denomination would baptize by immersion. Or there may be boundaries of practice. Do we encourage the speaking of tongues or not? And of course, they could be boundaries of focus. So Help International is called to mobilize missionaries to reach the lost around the world, especially those who are lost in the areas of drug addiction. Praise the Lord. We honor this group, Help International. They don't devote their time to digging wells in Africa, and rightly so. Their focus, the boundary of their focus, is on reaching the lost through evangelism. These smaller boundaries are within the wider boundary of the church, which was established by Jesus. There is no plan B, Amy reminded us several times. Jesus is committed to his church. But, these smaller apostolic boundaries are within that wider boundary of unity that Jesus defined. So if we are in different apostolic groups, we can love each other. We can encourage each other. We can learn from each other. We can honor each other. We can work together. We don't expel each other from the body of Christ 
just because of different non-essential doctrines or practices or focuses. So that was teaching two. Now we're on the third teaching. The purpose of today's teaching is to address a potential important objection. Imagine someone who says this. You say I must consider whether or not I have the authority to exclude others from the body of Christ. Well, my authority comes directly from God because I am a prophet. I must speak the truth I am hearing from God. If that truth is that some members, so-called, of the body of Christ are deceived following another gospel, then so be it. I will call them out whether or not they want to hear what I have to say. This is what it means to be a prophet. What does it mean to be a prophet? Is what I just read a correct understanding of the prophetic? Okay, the prophetic. This is a vast subject and there's a lot that could be said on it, could be taught on it in a very worthy fashion. Also, recognizing that different traditions have different opinions. So, our modest goal in this teaching is very pointed to provide some insight into the role of the prophet, the relationship between the prophet and the prophetic and the apostolic, and the implications for unity in the body of Christ. I hope you don't mind if I begin by reading from my book, which tells the story of the Wittenberg 2017 initiative. This passage is from chapter 17 about the 2014 gathering in Trento, Italy. It describes the moment when Verena Long stood up to address the group. Verena's talk was monumental. She spoke as an Austrian PhD in history who had done her homework. And she spoke as a loyal Roman Catholic who loved her church. What did she do? In this talk, she honored Martin Luther. Here is a summary of her message. Martin Luther was a prophet. He was not a rebel. He was a faithful Roman Catholic, an Augustinian monk, professor of theology in a leading university. The image of Luther defiantly nailing his 95 theses onto the door of the church at Wittenberg is not supported by historical facts. It is a legend. And it is an unhelpful legend because it gives the wrong picture of Luther in 1517. Martin Luther was acting appropriately as a prophetic voice in his own church. He was not intending to divide the church when he sent this message. Instead, he correctly submitted it to the apostolic authority who was over him in the church hierarchy. Because while the nailing on the door is a legend, it is known for certain that he mailed the 95 theses to Albrecht, the Archbishop of Mainz. He then waited for Albrecht's reply, expecting an honest theological discussion to ensue. What did Albrecht of Mainz do? Did he correctly handle the prophetic word that Luther sent him? No. 
He did not. In fact, he did not respond to Martin Luther at all. Instead, he forwarded the 95 Theses to Pope Leo X for him to censure Martin Luther. So after Verena taught this, she presented a very helpful picture, a diagram. This shows a happy church building, well supported by two equally strong pillars. One pillar bore the label apostolic, the other prophetic. She explained that this picture depicted Paul's statement in Ephesians 2, that God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. She then displayed another picture of the same church building, but in this one, the apostolic pillar had grown much larger, pushing up the church building on one side. On the other, the pillar representing the prophetic had deteriorated and was crumbling away beneath the weight being placed on it as the church tilted over. The building was toppling, over-supported on one side and under-supported on the other. Here are Verena's words. This was the situation in my church in 1517. The church was unbalanced. The apostolic had grown overly important, and the prophetic voice went unheard. It was a true tragedy. It ended in division when Pope Leo excommunicated Martin Luther. Now, Verena's simple diagram is the perfect place to start the third teaching on our Boundaries of Reconciliation series. If you recall, in the last teaching, Amy spoke about apostolic authority and the important role of the apostolic in protecting unity in the body of Christ. During that talk, she acknowledged that the power that comes with this role has sometimes been abused. I think we are all aware of situations, both personally and in the church at large, where this type of abuse has happened. And this is what was happening at the time of Luther. Archbishop Albrecht and Pope Leo were not protecting the flock. They were extracting financial gain and furthering their positions of power. So what did God do? God sent a prophet. The gift of the prophetic is meant to go hand in hand with the gift of the apostolic. In the right ordering of the body of Christ, the prophetic complements the apostolic, and vice versa. Let's look at the scriptures. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here we see that there are five primary roles that Jesus has provided to mature the body of Christ. But is there any ordering within these five roles? Let's look at the other scripture Verena has on her diagram. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole body is joined together, 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This makes clear that two of the five have a special role. All five build up the church, but God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Verena's happy diagram is one way to depict this. Another way to depict this is a helpful picture that Amy gave us years ago in a short teaching to the Antioch Network. She described two lines of stones, foundation stones, that meet in a corner. One line is the prophetic, the other the apostolic. The cornerstone where they meet is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest apostle, Hebrews 3.1. Jesus is also the greatest prophet, Acts 7.37 and Luke 7.28, Mark 6.4, Luke 13.33, Luke 24.19. So clearly the two roles of apostle and prophet are elevated above the other three. But is there any ordering between them? 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, guidance, different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. So in this passage, Paul describes an ordering of gifts in which some are greater. This should not lead to pride. Paul has already counted this earlier in the chapter when he described the more unpresentable or hidden gifts as having greater honor. All gifts are equally necessary, but the apostles are listed first, followed by the prophets. Hopefully, these three scriptures taken together help us understand how God orders his household. There's a foundation of the apostolic and prophetic, with the apostolic first and then the prophetic. The gifts of teaching, evangelism, and pastoring are added to form a five-member team that is anointed for the building up of the body of Christ. This is a beautiful, beautiful structure. With the understanding of this, we can now address the three topics for today, prophetic responsibility, submission, and freedom. Responsibility. Here is a common but wrong understanding of the responsibility of a prophet. A prophet speaks truth to power. Now, this sometimes does happen, don't get me wrong, but let's unpack the implications of this as the core definition of a prophet. Here are the implications. Prophets have the truth, but those in power, the apostolic, do not. Prophets always speak the truth, every truth they discern, to any apostolic authority. Apostolic authorities resist the prophet. Then division occurs, as some in the body side with the prophet, others with the apostle. Does this correspond to the New Testament descriptions of the role of the prophetic? No, it does not. We just read 
the New Testament descriptions of the prophetic, and it works hand-in-hand with the apostolic. Well, someone may say, okay, but I'm one of those Old Testament prophets. You know, the kind that lays on their side naked and yells at the king. Okay, let's give some credit to the Old Testament prophets. Over 60% of the time, when the word prophet or prophetess is used in the New Testament, it refers to the Old Testament prophets. So they are really important. Another mark of their importance. In the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit is described as having spoken through the prophets. This, too, refers to the Old Testament prophets. And I just have to shout out Micah in our midst, who loves the Old Testament prophets and studies them continuously. What does the New Testament say the primary purpose of the Old Testament prophets was? Was it to yell at the kings? No. It was to point to Jesus. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Or think of the common refrain through all the Gospels, beginning in the first chapter of Matthew. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And, of course, Jesus described himself as the fulfillment of the prophets. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So the New Testament teaches us that the primary responsibility of the Old Testament prophets was to prepare the nation of Israel for the presence of Jesus, their Messiah, on the earth. Now, note, primary responsibility, not the only responsibility, but the primary one. And the primary responsibility of the prophetic in the New Testament is exactly the same, but also a little different. Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To understand this better, let's look at what that important passage in Ephesians 4 says about the purpose of the prophetic. Now I'm cutting out some parts here so we can get the flow. So Christ himself gave the prophets so that the body of Christ may be built up, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, growing to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So Old Testament prophets pointed to the presence of Christ on the earth in the Messiah. This passage ends also with the presence of Christ on the earth, not as an individual, but through his body. Do you see that? The responsibility of the prophetic in the New Testament is also to point to Christ. But whereas the Old Testament prophets were pointing to the appearance of the Messiah as an individual, In the New Testament, the prophetic points to and prepares for the appearance of the mature worldwide body of Christ. Jesus makes it clear that the unique ministry of the Old Testament prophets to point to Jesus as an individual ended with John the Baptist, 
who was the ultimate prophetic voice pointing to the appearance of Jesus. For all the prophets, Jesus says, and the law prophesied until John. Or in Luke 7, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he going forward. Thinking back to Amy's picture of the foundation stones, those two rows, I like to think of them being laid sequentially. God started with the Old Testament prophets, laid in a straight line until John the Baptist. Then the cornerstone was laid, Jesus Christ. From there, in a different direction, to make up a building, the apostolic foundation stones began to be laid. You see that? The prophetic, the apostolic, Jesus is the cornerstone. This is a sequential way of seeing how they were laid. In the Old Testament, the prophetic was primary. And the apostolic, the kings and the judges, were secondary. But in the New Testament, the apostolic is primary and the prophetic is secondary. However, both lines point to Jesus. So, returning to our friend who is an Old Testament-style prophet, speaking truth to power without any accountability to others in the body of Christ. I am sorry, my friend, but this is not how the prophetic works. Your intentions may be good, but you are going about it the wrong way. You are out of order. Additionally, consider this. If you are trying to escape New Testament accountability for your prophetic words, you might want to remember what the Old Testament accountability looked like, being stoned if your prophecy proved to be inaccurate. Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. It is also worth considering whether or not you are actually undermining your own intended purpose. Many of those who take on the Old Testament prophet role of truth-telling do so because they are deeply concerned about their church or other believers being misled by false doctrine. And this is a valid concern. Ephesians 4, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. But how does the entirety of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, around this verse, teach prophets to address this concern of being blown around by teaching and deceitful practices? There's six things that happen in order. Number one, God gave prophets for team ministry. We've already talked about that. Number two, to build up the body. Number three, we haven't talked about this yet, until unity in the faith. And then number four, to not be deceived. Number five, so as to grow into the head Christ. Number six, so that the body works together correctly in love. So the prophetic is meant to work together with the other gifts for unity. Once unity is achieved, then the mature body will not be subjected to deceptive teaching. But the Old Testament-style prophet is oftentimes willing to undermine unity 
in order to defend against this or that perceived false doctrine. They are willing to skip a step. But in God's order, the church then doesn't reach the place of not being deceived. Do you see that? So those Old Testament-style prophets who are undermining unity in order to defend against false doctrine are actually working against the very end that they desire. Do you want to prophetically defend against false doctrine? Well, then work for the unity of the body of Christ. Okay, this was a long but necessary response to the modern idea that the primary responsibility of the prophetic in the church is speak truth to power. Let's try to reframe what we're understanding the prophetic responsibility to be. Here's the responsibility of prophets. Number one, speak what they hear God saying. Now, this is amazing. The prophetic is powerful and beautiful. We have a God who speaks. He speaks through his prophets. They hear what he's saying, and they speak it, and through them, we can hear the voice of God. How many of you have experienced this? This is awesome. Speak what they hear God say. Number two, pointing always to Jesus. Remember, prophets point to Jesus. Number three, for the purpose of building up the body. Number four, with the goal of complete unity. Now, if this is how we understand the responsibility of a prophet, sometimes this will indeed look like speaking truth to power. But it is a grave mistake to elevate one appearance of the prophetic as being the entirety of prophetic ministry. This mistake has often resulted in division in the body of Christ, which is worth grieving. We will now consider how those who have this prophetic gift and understand the responsibility that it entails correctly should function in relation to leaders with other giftings. Submission. <laughs> Not always a very popular word. But key, key. The fivefold ministries are meant by God to operate in mutual submission to one another. So this is not a hierarchy with the apostle at the top and everyone else receiving instructions from him or her and reporting back up. No, that's not the picture. This is a team ministry. Now, while there is a special role for the apostolically gifted leader in the team, which was described in part in the second teaching by Amy, there are also special roles for the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, and the pastors. They work together. They are mutually submitted to one another. Our friend George Miley has been very helpful to us in understanding this in a deeper way. Here's a section from chapter 20 of his new book, Leaders Following. The Responsibility of Fivefold Ministers. By fivefold, he's referring to these five gifts. And he writes and tweets and numbers them. That's why you have the six, seven, etc. So, six. The overall work of God's kingdom on earth is a huge undertaking. Every disciple is needed. 
each has a God-given role, but first they must be prepared. This preparation is the shared responsibility of fivefold ministers. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. None of these ministering leaders is able to do the job alone. Each has a unique contribution to make, but it falls short without the contributions of others. If all were apostles, everybody would be worn out, including the apostles themselves. But without apostolic influence, the church cannot fully mature. Apostles need prophets, but prophets also need apostles. Both would be quite needy without shepherds, pastors, and incomplete without evangelists. And where would we, where would we be without teachers? But caution, too often an out-of-balance view of teaching has left the church weakened. More on this in the next chapter, and you have to get his book in order to read the cliff follow-up on that cliffhanger. All right, so in number 10, it says, Prophets need apostles. Why? Well, ultimately, it is those with the apostolic giftings who are responsible for receiving and responding to the prophetic messages brought by prophets. As Amy pointed out, the apostolic, one role of the apostolic, is to protect unity in the body. They have a wider view than the prophets, who are often focused on what they are hearing from God. So, if you believe you have a prophetic calling, here are four guidelines for operating in a spirit of humility and submission in that calling. Guideline one, who is acknowledging your prophetic calling? What apostolic authority agrees with you that God is giving you prophetic messages? You need to find your place, if you haven't already, in a mutually submitted team composed of apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There are no Lone Ranger prophets in the New Testament. Here's another way to think of this. Have you been given permission to bring your prophetic message? Submission means you do not force your message upon an unwilling audience, even if you are absolutely convinced that you are right. Now, this is really difficult. It takes patience. Fruit of the Spirit are important for prophets. It is possible to be technically right, but relationally wrong. How do I know this? Paul taught me. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. So this guy has the gift of prophecy, and he gets it right all the time. He never misses. Well, there's more. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, ah, but do not have love, I am nothing. So what does seeking permission in love look like? Well, it can depend on the context. Here are two examples. First is an individual prophetic ministry. Now, this, this is a beautiful topic that we haven't had time to talk about at all so far, but I just want to honor John Michael and Diane Wall, 
who have led us so beautifully in this way for years and years and years. They uh, minister among us and have ministered. Of course, John Michael died in January, but have ministered among us. Diane still does in the area of individual prophetic words. So how would someone like Diane seek permission? Well, you might ask the person that you have a word for. I think I'm hearing an encouraging word for you from the Lord. Would you be open to receive this? If it is a word of guidance, or even more, a word of correction, you have to be very sensitive. Are they really receptive? Or are you pressuring them to say yes? If you get the sense that they're not really receptive, that they're hesitant, back off. Say, you know, I sense that you're not, hesit not receptive to this, and that's absolutely fine. I give you complete freedom to not want to hear the word that I, I feel like I have. All right, that's one example. Corporate prophetic ministry, different example. This would be within a church or ministry. So in a service, you feel like you have a word for the congregation. Don't just stand up and yell it out. Approach the pastor, or maybe there's an identified tester of words, and submit the word you're hearing to them. Allow them to see, do they think it's appropriate for what the Holy Spirit is doing or saying at that moment in the church service and in the wider context of the life of the body. Or, maybe it's not a service, maybe you feel like you have a word for your pastor. Send your word privately, privately, to the pastor or elders. Make it clear you're not forcing this upon them, but asking them merely to consider it. Over time, you may build up trust with the leadership such that you are recognized as a prophet in their midst. This gives more, not entirely, but more of a blanket permission to speak out. So an example here would be Verena in Wittenberg 2017. By the last meeting, we knew if Verena stood up to speak, she, it was okay for her to say what she was hearing the Lord saying and we were going to consider it. So you can build up that trust, but you don't assume you have that trust at the beginning. Okay, guideline number one, who is acknowledging your prophetic calling? Do you have permission to speak? Guideline number two, once you have permission, you should express your prophetic message with humility. Leave open the door to the possibility that you might be wrong. Honor the listener. Don't expel them from the body of Christ. Remember that first teaching. So here's a great example of some language used by a prophet, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in the famous letter from a Birmingham jail. He wrote this letter to white pastors who were kind of sitting on the fence and not getting involved or resisting the civil rights movement. My dear fellow clergymen, but since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill, and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth. I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk but what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters 
think long thoughts and pray long prayers. If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or as a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Beautiful humility from Martin Luther King, Jr. Okay, guideline three. Third, your prophetic words must be tested. Are you willing for your words to be tested? Is this an accurate message? Does it contradict scripture? First Thessalonians, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. And First Corinthians, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Guideline three, prophetic words should be tested. Guideline four, Finally, it must be discerned how best to respond to your words, what actions to take, when to take them. It is the person who receives the prophetic word who has this responsibility, not the prophet. Or in the context of church or ministry, it is the leadership team that must decide this, the correct response, led by the apostolic. Again, George Miley. 39. Thus, laying foundations is crucial work requiring precise discernment. This is a work for apostles and prophets to do together, submitting to each other in love. Apostles and prophets are to honor and listen to each other. Apostles listen to prophets. Prophets, and here's the part we're talking about in guideline four, give apostles the word received, then honor how they respond. Both apostles and prophets can get out of order, as we all can. Each has a vital role to play in protecting the other from arrogance and error. Now, it can be very difficult for the prophet to allow the apostolic to take the lead here. Often the prophet thinks that he or she knows the correct interpretation and response. But the apostolic leader may not interpret the prophetic words in the same way or may not take the action that the prophet is hoping for or maybe even encouraging. What then? Two possibilities. It could be because the apostolic leadership is correctly discerning the wider implications of these actions. Maybe a quick response, which is what the prophet wants, would threaten the unity of the body. And a slower response is more appropriate and more protective. 
Or, possibility two, it could be because the apostolic leadership feels threatened by the necessary action and responds from a place of pride or fear, or both pride and fear. As George said, apostles can get out of order as well as prophets can. And when they do, it often initiates a downward spiral that Satan loves, where the prophet then reacts strongly to the apostle's non-response, causing an even more fearful response from the apostle, ending in division. Have you ever seen this downward spiral between prophets and apostles, or prophets and pastors? Since we are focusing on the prophetic, not the apostolic, in this teaching, we must ask, how should prophets respond when apostles become, as George says, out of order? The answer is freedom. Freedom? Freedom may seem a strange word here, but bear with me. We will get there. First, let's revisit the story we started with at the beginning and see what happened with Martin Luther. Remember, he brought his prophetic message, the 95 Theses, and submitted it to his apostolic authority, Albrecht. Martin Luther's apostolic authorities, Albrecht and Pope Leo, did not respond correctly. They were both compromised by financial entanglements. Rather than responding directly to Martin Luther, Archbishop Albrecht sent the 95 Theses to Pope Leo. Pope Leo initiated a series of actions that escalated, finally culminating in the excommunication of Martin Luther, and the Protestant-Catholic division was born. Now, how did Luther respond to Albrecht and Leo? Not well, if you know the history. Long story short, he became angry and bitter. The sermons at the end of his life are filled with contemptuous language against anyone who he felt opposed or disappointed him. The Pope, the Catholic Church, and especially the Jews, as we know from the Wittenberg 2017 talks about the Judenstown. Of course, although he was angry and bitter, his theological writings were also powerful and have been mildly used by God. So thank the Lord that his sovereign power is greater than our dysfunctions. But that fact that his writings were, has, have been used by God does not excuse his response of anger and bitterness. Over 400 years later, Martin Luther's namesake, once again, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., observed the dangers of a prophetic ministry operating outside of the New Testament boundaries. Here's what MLK wrote. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred, and it comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up across the nation, nourished by the Negroes' frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talking about incorrect responses to this prophetic urge that racism needs to be addressed. Look at the words he used. 
bitterness, frustration, loss of faith, hatred, violence. Dr. King denounces this other way as not Christian. Unfortunately, in our time, we see Christians who are traveling down this very path. Here is Russell Moore, whose context is the Southern Baptist denomination here in the U.S. A friend sent me a clip of two Christian political commentators arguing that their cultural opponents were so sinful that they had sunk to the level of the subhuman. This is demonic. Our enemies are demonic, one said. There's no turning the other cheek. Moore characterizes the argument he is hearing from commentators such as these, and which I myself have read in articles written by church leaders. Turning the other cheek was fine for those times, but not in a culture this hostile to Christianity. That doesn't work anymore. For this, we can't be weak. We have to fight. Now, one aside here. Was the Roman culture of Jesus' time less hostile to Christians? I think not. But the path that Dr. King and Russell Moore are describing in different, different ways ends up in a terrible place. That place is despair. Despair is a heavy, heavy burden that Satan loves to put on people. If you are saying or feeling, it's up to me to stop this, or I'm the only one who can make this right, beware. Prophets were not meant to bear this weight. Today, I bring you prophets good news. There is channeling my best Gino Hildebrandt voice, FREEDOM! Once a prophet has delivered the message he or she believes is from God, the prophet's responsibility ends. They are not responsible for how the message is received or responded to. This is very free. Ultimately, the church is in the hands of God. Is God capable of maintaining the church? He has done so over two millennia, in spite of our best human attempts to sabotage it. Can God bring the church in the U.S. through the current culture wars? Yes, he can. It is not up to you and me. We do our part, working with others in the body of Christ, but ultimately God bears that responsibility. So prophets, be free, free to hear from God, free to speak your words in a context of a mutually submitted team of leaders, and free to stop there. Having delivered the message, you don't need to be anxious about the results. Renounce despair. Embrace hope. Hope in a God who is greater than all of our dysfunctions. To end, let's hear what prophetic freedom sounds like. Here again 
is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On April 3rd, 1968, at the end of a speech in support of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, April 4th, he was assassinated and killed. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a prophet to our nation. He understood his responsibility. He operated in submission and he embraced prophetic freedom. Let's do the same. Father, I want to pray for those who are listening to this message, especially who feel this prophetic burden, who feel that you are speaking to them, and they are trying to respond as best they can, as best they know how, and perhaps have made mistakes, perhaps have spoken when they shouldn't have spoken, or have not asked permission, or have pressed for a certain response to their prophetic word. But I pray for them. I pray for encouragement. I pray for healing. I pray for hope. I pray you would place each one in a beautiful, mutually submitted team that includes the apostolic and the evangelistic, the teachers and the pastors, that their, their gifting as a prophet would be rightly placed in order in the body of Christ. I pray you would give them patience, love, fill them with the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, I pray for their prophetic messages that they would speak the words they hear from you. They would be able to leave it and not feel the weight of having it carried through in any way that they imagine. And they would rest in your love, rest in your well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I also pray that their prophetic words would bear fruit and that you would heal the body of Christ worldwide, bring it to unity, bring it to that mature, expression of Jesus that we read about in Ephesians 4. And I ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.